Super Talk Mississippi media production. Taylor Swift is coming to New Orleans, and Margaritaville Resort Biloxi and Super Talk are giving away a free pair of tickets. For your chance to win, go register now at Margaritaville Resort Biloxi and get your name in for the final drawing from Margaritaville and Super Talk 103.1. He's the former president and publisher of the Sun-Herald, and now he's on the radio. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome to Coast View, and uh, I guess a belated... Merry Christmas. Uh, yesterday was Christmas. Hope you're having a great day. Some are some are taking a sigh of relief. Some are waking up, probably having a little bit too much sweets yesterday. Some are already in the car headed to return stuff. That's kind of what you do. Uh, this week's going to be full of all of that. But we, we, we want to thank you for, for listening to 103.1 Super Talk Gulf Coast. And uh, I'd always like to say, if, you, if you're listening on Facebook or YouTube or your favorite podcast, it is uh, December the 26th, 6th, the day after Christmas, and we appreciate you uh, you tuning in and paying attention to what your show is all about. So hope you had a great Christmas. Uh, hey, we got a great show today. I've invited my friend Ashley Edwards, the, the former CEO of the Business Council. He's in the private sector now. He's a former journalist. He's just a smart guy. Um, I wanted to catch up with him. We want to talk a little bit about social media. We want to talk a little bit about Hurricane Ian. What's the latest from down there? Ashley actually has spent some time down there recently because uh, he's in the, sort of the disaster recovery business. And um, and we'll hear from him about that. But without any further ado, let me welcome my friend Ashley Edwards back to Cozy. How you doing, my friend? Hey, Ricky. I'm doing well. Thank you. It's doing, doing, doing great. Hey, listen, I had Jamie Miller on uh, the show. And uh, look forward to having him back on a regular basis. But it looks like he hit the ground running. And, um, you know, we're in good hands with Jamie, aren't we? We're, you're in great hands. I've spent a lot of time with him since the transition occurred. And, uh, we've, you know, we've had a lot of really great conversations. And, you know, his, his mind is so focused on doing a good job uh, with the business council. He's, you know, looking ahead, I think, going to be very aggressive in terms of the work that he does. And, uh, you know, hey, as a, as a member uh, I look forward to, to seeing his leadership in action. I think he's going to do a great job. Yeah, we had a we had a great conversation. I think you know he said that for the for the for for the first many weeks, or if not months, he's going to spend a lot of time listening, and um, which is what you need to do. You should never assume you know when you go into something like this. And the business council is a complex organization. It's really the only regional. Uh, business organization that we have here, and as you and I have talked about many times before, we're fortunate here that we've been able to maintain uh, a high involvement level of CEOs here along the coast because, you know, what happens too often with an organization like the Business Council, and I think Katrina put us in a position where I think this may not happen with us here, is it ends up getting passed down to maybe second and third lieutenants along the way, and you don't have the key people involved, but, you know, you still have the dream team of uh, for a steering committee and, and board there at the C, at the um, at the business council of CEO leadership and I think as long as we keep the, the the key players involved in this community we're always going to be moving in a very strategic way going forward and I think Jamie's going to do a good job of listening his background having just like you sort of cutting his teeth in a post uh, Katrina environment and his work with uh, with the Mississippi Development Authority his work you know he, he worked over with me actually after the oil spill in Alabama 
um, he's uh, he's seasoned, and of course the Bureau of Marine Resources. So I mean, I think that's that's a, that's an important one as well. But um, so you think so we're in good hands as we go forward. I mentioned that uh, you're in kind of the dis- disaster recovery business now. Why don't you remind people what you're doing in the private sector? Sure. Yeah. So you know, disaster recovery is is a big piece of it. We do a lot of uh, work on on federal compliance with projects and funding streams. Of course, after a disaster, you're going to get a lot of federal money flowing. Uh, we do a lot of public finance work, and so uh, you know, we've been spending some time on the ground down where Hurricane Ian hit in, the, in southwestern Florida. You know, ground zero for Hurricane Ian was really around the Fort Myers area. Uh, Fort Myers Beach, which is uh, sort of a, an island community that's a, a barrier island, uh, you know, very sim- similar to Sanibel down there, really was was ground zero for the hurricane. It's where it hit. Um, you know, spent some time on the ground down there. Uh, you can imagine, you know, where they are. When I was down there, you know, a few days ago, they were, uh, you know, 70 days into their recovery and uh, as you can imagine, everything is debris trucks and, uh, you know, it looks very similar to what we would have seen. <clears throat> I would compare it probably to what we would have seen in like Long Beach and past Christiane. Um, the surge was not as severe as what we had in Hancock County. Um, but in some ways, I don't know that that was to their advantage because, you know, if you had, if you had gone through Waveland after Hurricane Katrina, you would have seen that that surge would have scoured out most of the buildings. It would have knocked them down and pushed that debris inland. Um, And so, you know, the cleanup began and it was a huge job. Uh, They've got a huge job down there. Uh, But the surge really ran through a lot of the buildings. They have a, a, you know, much higher, more dense development down there. A lot of the buildings that the surge hit are still standing, but will not ever be able to be repaired. They will have to come down. Uh, You know, in some cases they're leaning very dangerously. And so, you know, in addition to just all of the debris that they're still picking up, uh, they're going to have to go into lots and take down houses and condos and buildings. Uh, And, you know, the mayor there in Fort Myers Beach said that they lost 75 percent of all their habitable structures in their community. Uh, And so, you know, you can imagine what they're going through. It's it's a very tough time for those folks down there. uh, And they've got a long recovery ahead of them. You know, thankfully, the, the 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 sort of the breadth of the storm, it was not as large as Hurricane Katrina. You know, I would say the worst damage is con- is confined to you know 20 miles of coastline as opposed to 100, like we had in Katrina. But you know, if you're right in the middle of that 20, it, for you, it is no different than Hurricane Katrina was for us. And so, uh, they've got a big job ahead of them. Well, actually, you and I talked about this, and I've talked about it many times here on the show with, with folks like Josh Morgan, and the top hurricane chaser in the world, and others. That what you what you witness down there in Fort Myers and the surrounding communities of Fort Myers. I've, by the way, by the, uh, this is essentially about where Hurricane Charlie hit, which was a super small storm, high wind, not a big surge event, and a lot of people made decisions to stay in their homes for for for, for uh, Hurricane Ian. Um, who had experienced Charlie, and it's just sort of Charlie had was to Ian what Camille was to Katrina, <clears throat> in helping people decide to stay home when they should not have. And um, you know, it's a, it's a really a miracle more people weren't killed down there, wasn't it? It, it? No, it absolutely was. I mean, you know, this it, this was a very very severe event, and the storm surge. 
was was really the the part that uh, that created the, the greatest amount of destruction. You know, when you get a little farther inland, uh, even into Fort Myers proper, you know, m- sort of removed from the beachfront, um, you know, it's more business as usual. Life is going on a little bit more normally. So, I, you know, whereas, you know, if you got up to Hattiesburg after Hurricane Katrina, you saw incredible yeah. amount of destruction and, you know, trees down on homes and things. They've got some of that, but not to the lar- not to nearly the, the as large of an extent. Uh, but down there in those coastal communities, you know, wow, it, it is really bad. Uh, and of course, you know, they can't get temporary housing into those communities because they're all in flood zones. And so they can't put temporary house, you know, federal temporary housing, things like that down on those lots. And, um, you know, and that's, that's difficult because one of the things we wanted to do in Mississippi was get people back onto their own lots. We knew that would make them bring about their own personal recovery more quickly. Um, they're they're going to really struggle with that down there, uh, and you know I'll tell you it's never a question of if it's always a question of when we get another hurricane we will get another one here we know that um, but that is a very populated coastline down through there and you know it it hit some communities and did some incredible devastation to those communities um, had it hit the Tampa Bay. Uh, region as it originally was supposed to, I can only imagine how much larger of a scale the devastation was. Uh, you know, Fort Myers Beach was a, is a town of about 5,500 people. Uh, so, you know, it, this one certainly could have hit much more heavily populated areas. But even the but but there's very few places along that Florida coastline now that you're not going to find population because it is developed. You know, from from Tampa Bay to Naples, solid down the beach line. So it's uh, yeah. I have a brother-in-law who lives in Tampa, and of course, on the show, and when I, especially when I was over in, in New Orleans, when we used to talk about the worst-case scenarios for New Orleans, which was not Katrina, incidentally, could be way worse. That um, Tampa rivaled New Orleans. When you think about Tampa, they don't have levee protection to begin with, and the average, the average uh, above sea level building is about four feet. Imagine that. And of course, that's that's what's so potentially devastating. If if this storm had just moved just a little bit further north, like it was expected to, it would have been unbelievably. It would actually would have been so devastating that, for example, the economics of the United States would have been would have had a blip on it, and what it would have done. Not that not that not that Florida wasn't already in a bad spot when it comes to insurance. Um, but it would have the insurance ramifications for the entire United States, especially coastal communities, would have been beyond measure. And that's going to happen. And, you know, we're teeter tottering, aren't we, actually, when it comes to the insurance situation, the coastal insurance situation? Well, we are. And every I'll tell you, everybody down there is talking about it. You know, I was very impressed with their local leadership there. We were able to go and actually watch them have a local uh, legislative delegation meeting. They talked a lot about insurance. Yeah, I bet they I bet they did. This is Ashley Edwards, the former CEO of the Gulf Coast Business Council, who has spent some time down in, uh, in Florida where Ian hit. Uh, we're going to shift gears now. He's a former journalist. After we come back from a break, we're going to talk about the latest with Twitter and social media. And uh, we're going to give you a little bit more detail about why some of these conversations are incredibly important to uh, democracy. We'll see you after this. Listen live or on demand and watch episodes of Coast View on your laptop, desktop, or on your phone or tablet by going to supertalkmsgulfcoast.com. 
His love for the coast is why he's here. It's Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. Again, hope you had a great Christmas. And we're still in that, so that period between Christmas and New Year's. We're still going to be hearing the beautiful holiday music and reflecting on this past year and looking forward to the year ahead and uh, it's a time to really to get thanks and to appreciate what we have around us. That is for sure. I have uh, Ashley Edwards, CEO, former CEO of the Business Council. He's in the private practice now, um, and uh, and seems to be really enjoying what he's doing. And but he is a former journalist. Uh, you know, that we've talked about that before. But and he also is someone who's just smart and very well read. And he and I have had conversations here on Coast View before about Twitter. And why that is really important, and what we'll do, we're gonna, we're not actually gonna start with a conversation about Twitter, but we're gonna sort of build up, and toward the end of the of the, uh, the last segment, we'll we'll kind of update each other about where Twitter is now and sort of what the latest is. Not to say that there won't be some Twitter intermingled in all of what we're gonna talk about here, uh, happen uh, here now, but. What I wanted to do, Ashley, is just start with, I have said on the show so many times that that the role that trustworthy and reliable news plays to inform the citizenry is literally at the basis of a, of a thriving democracy. Um, let's just talk about that for just a second. You know, the role that, that TV and radio and especially newspapers that have been changed forever because of the digital tsunami – the way the role that that all of these these entities have played to especially on the local level to inform people so they can make wise decisions about about you know you know th- things that that local leaders are doing or maybe it's about who they want to vote for but but giving unbiased uh, information, news and information, and giving both sides of the story so that people can have what they need in as unbiased a way as possible that's critical, isn't it? Well, it's it is incredibly critical, and it's you know it's just incredible the sea change that we've had. I mean, there's no one that understands this more than you do, and and you've seen it at levels that most people will will never experience it. But you know, uh, very much like you, you know, coming from the hard news side and the newspaper business, you know, I was trained by old school editors that. Uh, you know, they were uh, they were absolutely ethical when it came to hard news. I mean, you know, it, it was not about opinion, uh, very cautious. And, you know, that is just not a part of what's going on anymore. You know, you think you think about in the 1970s or 1980s, the way that most Americans would have gotten their news in those times would have been from the local newspaper that they would have received on their doorstep daily, uh, the local newscast that they would have seen on television or the national nightly newscasts that they would have seen on one of the major broadcast networks. And those were all focused on journalism, on hard news. And uh, the way that most people receive their news today are through uh, blogs, kind of political entertainment on cable news shows, um, you know, lots of different, you know, sort of information streams that are online uh, that have varying levels of sort of ethics and, and, you know, and journalism chops and um, and so it's 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 a di- completely different world than it was uh, even 20 years ago. You know, when I worked in the newspaper business, I remember when we all finally decided, like, we have to have a website. You know, we were still doing the, the hard printed newspaper whenever I got into the business, you know, 20 some odd years ago. 
And so just that incredible sea change that's occurred till, till today, it's changed the way that consumers get their information. And uh, as a result of that, we're dealing with all of the challenges of making sure uh, that folks are getting good information so you know on which they can uh, base the decisions and the judgments they make about the world they're living in. Yeah, it's a, and of course, the role that social media has played in that has been dramatic, and we'll come to that in a second. But what we're, what we're doing is sort of building this, this foundation off of what was then and where we are now and how this sea change has really affected uh, the ability for you to get the information you need, you know, accurate information. I had a great conversation with Jim Asher recently. Jim was the former Washington Bureau Chief for McClatchy. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning editor. And, uh, you know, he pointed out to me, and you know this well, too, that, listen, there's always been bias. There, bias has always been there. There have been good newspapers and bad newspapers. Thank God there's more good newspapers than bad newspapers. But he pointed out there was a there was a race riot that was happening in one of the communities that he was in, and he spent a lot of time. He actually he crossed the picket line and went in to understand sort of the deep, deepness of the story, what a good journalist should do. But the, edit, the the publisher pulled the story because he didn't want to get the community worked up. Well, those kind of things have been happening for a long time. He told another story about a malpractice story that he did on, uh, around a local hospital. And uh, he said the publisher came into his office and threw the paper down and said to him, that's the last, that's the last story you're going to do about malpractice in this, in this newspaper. It turns out the publisher was on the board for the, for the hospital. Now, look, a lot of privately owned newspapers might have might have operated that way, but but when I was with Knight Ritter, the man, listen. First of all, I had to sign a multi-page ethics policy. <laughs> it was multi-page. There was a lot of expectation that we were going to practice solid journalism, and that we were not going to let the business side intermingle with the uh, with the journalistic side. And that was the role of the publisher to find the balance of this. And I, you know, Roland, Roland taught me this, Roland Weeks, a former publisher of the Sun-Herald. But I use this all the time to explain to people that a good publisher understood that you had a lot of conflicting objectives that were happening at any given time. You had multiple hats. You had a community hat. You were listening to the community. You were engaged in the community. You are hearing lots of feedback there. You had the fiduciary responsibilities of running a company or CEO of a company, not just a newspaper. The newspaper was a had revenue and expenses and had a bottom line and had shareholders and you had that responsibility. And then you had the First Amendment obligation that was part of the, of your of your gig, which is to provide as unbiased uh, a news report as you possibly could. And if there was editorializing a biased point of view to give, it's going to be on the editorial page. That's that's we were going to separate the opinions from the rest of the news. And you know, I would say the industry, especially. Um, in the last, uh, I, well, I won't put it, I won't try to put a, a, a date on it, but for many, many years, it's been incredibly focused on doing this in an ethical way that provides uh, news and information in as unbiased a way as possible. And there was a lot of checks and balances in that. There was the journalistic organizations that supported that ethos and so on and so on. What happened, though, is newspapers began to lose resources as a result of the digital tsunami. A lot of the editors and these layers that were in place 
to corroborate stories, to make sure you know there were multiple sources, to make sure that the stories were written accurately. And then when there was some question as to whether there was going to be some uproar that came from the story that was being done, that it rose to the level of the editor and he could be involved in it. There was a legal piece to it that would be involved in it. And every now and then, from time to time, a story would come to my attention as the publisher. And we would have to make decisions about whether we were going to run the story and and whether that story, even if it had legal ramifications to it, that it was worth it. You know, the, the public good that would come from doing that story would be worth the noise that would that would occur as a result of doing a story. Sometimes you decide not to do it. Sometimes you decide to do it. But see, that's part of the journalistic process, isn't it, isn't it, uh, Ashley? Well, you know, I mean, I think you made a great point there, and that is, you know, you you just it's those layers of checks and balances, you know, and, um, you know, Ricky, I often think about the fact that in some ways, you know, we have to look in the mirror about who's to blame from this because. There's no question that uh, this has gone where the money has gone, meaning where where the consumer demand is. I mean, you you know, you think about the early 1990s around the Gulf War era when CNN was just sort of getting its start, you know, as a cable news network. And, uh, you know, I remember as a young kid during the Gulf War, you know, t- tuning into CNN every night to watch Wolf Blitzer, uh, Bernard Shaw report on what was going on. Um, and they were they were a very hard news type of an organization back in those days. And over time, you know, you look at the, the just the economy for this type of, you know, it's look, the, the money is in the opinion page. Yeah. So what's happened is we've essentially taken the opinion page and spread it across the entire spectrum of everything we do. Only problem is there's no delineation anymore. So people think here they're hearing opinion and they think they're hearing news. Yeah, yeah, that, that's 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 exactly right, and that's one of the issues that we'll talk about in a second. That's been a major issue with with social media. But what it, what happened is that the way it was before. If you had sources that you didn't like, you could find sources. You could find other sources. There was enough sort of fragmentation in the media market that it helped you. You could find some reliable sources. You point, for example, I remember well the cable news situation that you just talked about. You know, the first Gulf War. 1991, I remember, because my son uh, Jordan was born, and while we were waiting for him to be born, we were watching CNN on the TV as the war played out in front of our eyes, and boy, did they do a good job at that. But what happened is, as more as more cable news networks started to open up, and it became a lot of competition, and they were having to share ad dollars among all of them, there, there were some challenges in that, so they had to cut news resources. How to, If you cut news resources, what do you do? Well, you have to start filling that time with talking heads and at that moment when we started filling the time with talking heads that's when the bias or the leaning of the owners began to become more apparent when we come back we'll pick it up from there and talk about sort of this evolution we'll see you after this break on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. He's the former president and publisher of the Sun-Herald, and now he's on the radio. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. 
Welcome back to Coast View. And again, I hope you're having a great day after after Christmas. I have my friend Ashley Edwards, the former CEO of the Coast Business Council, He's now in private in the private sector. He's a former journalist and just a smart guy who really pays a lot of attention to especially the changing face of media. And when we went to break, uh, Ashley, we're talking about the sort of the the growing competition in cable news and the talking heads that started to to, to blossom, and then of course Fox came to be because they want they you know the, the owners there want a sort of an alternate voice, a more conservative voice. But you know even before social media, we even knew about social media. There was you know that's when we started to see oh okay so. TV news can be entertainment, and and the entertainers that are uh, these talking heads, these entertainers, these news entertainers that are on TV, it's okay for them to be biased. Um, I don't know that we actually thought of it that way, but what happened is that people would start to lean toward the cable news networks that were more like them. And that's sort of a, a big thing that was happening in America prior to the Internet really taking hold. That was true, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, there was a model that really came about, you know, 15 years or, or, or so ago in which a whole lot of folks figured out that, you know, it, there is an incredible opportunity to monetize kind of an echo chamber uh, because people were they, they were searching uh, for for, you know, hearing the things that they kind of wanted to hear and, and people, uh, you know, telling them the things that they already suspected. And so. You know, we, we've gone through this period of time now where these various news organizations uh, have really become so unbalanced and they've catered directly to their to their core audience. And so, you know, you don't really find a situation anymore where any of these groups are aimed at a broad spectrum of people. They all have kind of become echo chambers. And again, you know, it's been a very lucrative business for a lot of them. They've done very well with it. Uh, and you know, with with that in mind, it's it's hard to say they have an incentive to do anything differently. Uh, well, intermingled in all of them, whether it be Fox or CNN or MSNBC or you name it, intermingled in all of them, it's some actually good good news reporting. But but that but that but that's sort of like the the, the whatever news reporting they're doing is sort of donutted around this very you know uh, I would say very biased. Are leaning mo- the majority of them lean left. We we know that, um, and but the reality is that's the way it is, and and that was the way it had been for a long time. So people were moving toward, as you pointed out, the echo chambers that made the most sense to them. I gave a speech, Ashley, when I was in New Orleans, and uh, it was at Loyola, and I was you know explaining what what's happening as as newspapers are challenged across and really it's not just newspapers media in general are affected by the digital tsunami and it was it's still amazing to me to think of it this way that the iphone did not come to be until 2007 i mean that's after hurricane katrina after hurricane katrina i mean you've put it you put it in perspective um, we saw, you know, we saw things happening within phones. You saw the, what BlackBerry was doing. In fact, I, I, I co-led the strategic planning effort for Knight Ritter, and we said, soon someone's going to figure this out. They're going to figure out how to get massive amounts of data through this phone, and when they do, 
man, it's going to be a game changer. It's going to be a big time game changer. Not realizing that Steve Jobs was going to introduce the iPhone that was this incredibly intuitive tool that would put power in everyone's hand to be able to get any information they needed anytime they wanted it. And it made every single person, every single person is now a reporter. They, they they can cover the events. They can video the riot. They can do whatever they're going to do. And I mean, in that moment, I don't think anyone realized just how significant it was going to be. And that every single social media company became mobile and enabled, and the world changed very dramatically. But it's amazing to think of that was in 2007. It's incredible. You know, look, I was a, I was kind of a late adopter. I didn't get my first iPhone until 2015. Um, and you know, I, but I got an iPad back in like 2012 timeframe and, you know, it, I think about the fact that I lived so much of life before I had these things and now I, I can't do without them. You know, it is, it's completely changed our world and our society. And, and as you said, the, the way that we interact with news, and of course, as you have talked about many times, um, and I think it's a, it's a good story to tell people it's these algorithms that understand who you are and, and what type of news you want to consume and uh, what type of product ads you need to see. And so the things that are just being blasted in your face all day long, every day are very targeted to you. Um, and there's, monet, you know, there's monetization chain, chains uh, along that entire front as well. And so uh, you know, it, we, it's, it's completely changed the media business um, and there were a lot of pioneers that really kind of kicked that off. I mean, Facebook was a big one. You know, uh, MySpace, you know, you remember that came online kind of before Facebook. And it was sort of all very personalized in terms of, you know, you and your friends and things of that nature. What Facebook really changed is a way to monetize all these pieces of commerce to go along with it. Um, and, you know, of course, now you see this, you know, incredible uh, world we have on our doorstep that's coming, the metaverse and, and all the things that are ahead of us. Uh, and, you know, we're going to see probably as much change over the course of the next 15 years as we saw over the last 15 years. So, so you captured you captured the evolution of that next step really well. What was interesting is, and I'll, I'll give people, people might have heard of this thing called Section 230. I'm going to read actually the, the, the very specific part of 230 that matters. But what, what's interesting is that the Facebook and, and others were only interested in getting users. For a long, long time, people said, how are they going to monetize this? How are they going to, you know, they're getting all these users to losing billions of dollars. How are they going to, how are they going to monetize this? So they were getting users all over the all over the world. They really didn't know. They had a lot of work that they were doing, but they really didn't know how they were going to monetize it. I'll answer the question on how they did. But they did so within the guise of this. It's, it's, it's called Section 230, and this is what it said. This is this this actually was adopted by Congress long before there was a Facebook, long before there was any of these social media companies. At the time, we were just thinking about maybe the commenting section that happened in like a newspaper website. Okay, but here's what it said: No provider or user of an interactive computer. It's interesting that that that's what they call it, an interactive computer service shall be treated as a publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. What they're saying is that if someone shares something on Facebook in the, in the, in the, as content, that Facebook's not going to be responsible for whether that's accurate or not. Okay? Now, what they went on to say is that they had to, they could make reasonable efforts 
to make sure people behave on their on their trap platform, to make people make sure what they're doing is legal on their platform, and so on. And so there's been, you know, they they and basically it's their platform. They can be biased if they want to. But the point was, that's why they're called tech companies. They were they were tech companies, not publishers. But they became publishers. That's the reality. So somewhere along the way, they became publishers. In other words, deciding what they want us to see and what they what I, what they want us to watch. And so they are when they when they got into that mode beyond just being legal, beyond just sort of you know trying to tone down the rhetorics to some extent, they they became biased in what they would let us see. And so that that is a that's actually a really big deal. So they're actually publishers now. And they shouldn't have Section 230. So if they didn't have Section 230, what would that mean? It would mean that if something is published that, that is uh, defamatory or, or, or that is misinformation that leads to some bad, that, that the public can sue, that we could sue them, and that, that Congress is not the one who has to figure out whether what they did are right or wrong. The courts will decide that, and then that will help them decide how they move forward. Hey, listen, TV stations, radio stations, newspapers, they live in this world every day. We have to be responsible. Responsible for what we what we allow to be to be communicated with with our with with the people who pay attention to what we do, but what they did to monetize essentially is they gathered all this data on us. When you sign up for these social media sites, you're giving them an enormous amount of data. They developed an absolutely genius ad delivery tool based on demographics. And it was unbelievable. You know, they could really zero in. Do you like to, do you want to buy a car? Are you about to buy a car? What color car do you like? And they could send cars that are just like that to your newsfeed. Someone made the decision to use the ad delivery mechanism as the same tool that delivers your news feed. That was a major mistake because what that meant is that if you like neo-Nazi stuff, you're going to get more neo-Nazi stuff. And so it makes it look like, you know, it's like the ultimate echo chamber. It makes it look like everybody in your newsfeed agrees with you. Now, look, Facebook has said they're going to move back to family and friends and away from that and spend more of their energy on doing sort of the short films like, like TikTok is doing. But, boy, in the process, they really created a major problem. And um, and so it's just, it's the Wild West. We're seeing this now play out in the world of, te- of, uh, of Twitter. And... Um, what Elon Musk is going to do at Twitter, there's a lot of noise there, Ashley, and I've talked about this before. But what he's going to do is he's going to reveal and what all these social media companies have been doing and the amount of bias built into their algorithms, the amount of bias built into who they let on their platform and who they don't let on their platform is truly unbelievable. So much power in three or four people. It's, it's really troubling. When we come back on the other side, we'll continue this evolution with Ashley. Ashley Edwards, and we'll see you after this. You can also listen live to Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on your Amazon Alexa devices. Once you've enabled the skill, just say, Alexa, open Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast. This is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Here's a here's something I don't remember the source. This is Rick, Ricky Matthews on Coast View, and uh, welcome back. I have my friend Ashley Edwards with us, and we're talking about the evolution of media in in, in America. But here's something I found the other day that I, I think is terrific, kind of helps tell the story, and then I'm going to ask Ashley to sort of pick it up from here. 
the decisions by Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and others to limit our communications or block certain people is a simple exercise of their rights under the First Amendment and Section 230 to curate their sites. But we should always be concerned when pla- when platforms take a role of censors. <laughs> and what Twitter is helping us understand f- from a lot of these behind-the-scenes communications that are not unfamiliar to me as a former publisher about deciding we did that when we were publishers. Uh, but there were a lot of layers to make sure we were tr- we were getting it right. What we're seeing is how ugly the process really is and just how biased they really are. And that's not good, is it, Ashley? It's not. Look, transparency is such a powerful thing, and we're starting to get some real transparency into what has been going on here. Um, And, you know, it's not at all unexpected. I mean, since the late 1990s, there has it's been very difficult to figure out how to regulate technology and sort of big tech Internet, uh, because it's, you know, the, the the, the, the innovation is happening so much faster than what the regulators really can understand and keep up with. And so, you know, we've been sort of feeling our way through this. It's complex and it's messy. Um, and we're, we're getting a lot of insight into just how complex and messy it is right now. Um, you know, some people have accused Elon and, and Twitter of saying, you know, hey, they're, they're kind of being selectively transparent. And I think that's probably true to an extent. Uh, but I think any transparency is good transparency, and we ought to know uh, what's going on behind <laughs> the scenes and what we're dealing with, because these things have truly become a very key part of our lives and of our society. You know, Facebook or Twitter has an incredible place in our modern society, and so uh, it's something we ought to be thoughtful about. It should not be something that we just give a passing thought to. I saw where some noted uh, personality on Twitter called Elon a neo-Nazi pig for what he's doing. And I think that's because they, this particular celebrity believes that all Republicans are, or anyone who has a conservative framework is a neo-Nazi pig. And that's a selective sharing that's happening. But I think what he's doing, though, uh, Ashley, he's bringing serious light to the need for these platforms to bring transparency to their curation rules and to be more consistent with the rules across the site. The reality is that they can't have one set of rules for some users and an entirely another set of rules for the other users. Well, actually, actually they can because it's, it's within their prerogative to do that, and they've got Section 230 uh, protection, and, uh, the, and they can be incredibly biased. But when it comes to, like, blocking stories that are important to the public discussion – and when they do it uniformly across all of the the platforms, that is a major major issue, isn't it? It is. You know, it, look, th- this is this is going to be an issue that is going to, I think, dominate uh, our public discourse uh, in the years to come, especially as we see the next generation, the next iteration of what social media is going to become. You know, as much of a powerful force as it is in our lives today, uh, 10 years from now, there are going to be people that spend uh, many, many, many hours of their day in this sort of virtual metaverse. Um, And so it's going to become even a larger part of our reality. Uh, And as a result of that, all of these questions that we have and that we're kind of struggling with right now are going to become even more important. Um, you know, you and I have talked about it before, Ricky. We, we are going through 
uh, a, a modern industrial revolution driven by the digital economy. And it is, I think, sometimes hard for us to even comprehend where we're headed. And it's going to happen at lightning speed. You know what's interesting? To kind of bring this to a close, if you look at the way media is covering Elon Musk, they're doing it. They're you know they're just trying to paint as they've completely missed the picture. They're just reacting. That's, that's that's the best way I can say it. Like for example, if you look at literally, I'm just look. I just pulled it out. This is this is current events. Axios Twitter suspends Elon Musk jet tracker account. Uh, uh, NBC, CNBC same thing. Yahoo Finance. Um, Twitter reportedly stopped paying rent on its offices. Uh, the Verge Jack Dorsey says that uh, there's nothing to hide. In fact, it's interesting. He's been kind of quietly supportive and saying publicly that they made big mistakes and and they didn't get it right. And that's interesting the way he's kind of played this. But they're just absolutely reacting to to the situation and not really zeroing in on what are the ramifications. The ramifications to them, to all media, not just social media, all media around this notion around transparency and bias is going to be an incredibly important conversation that will change media forever. I've said it many, many times. And Elon seems to know that. He seems to be many, many, many steps ahead of us. He understands that when we don't have a public square that we can trust, it's a major problem. Last word, Ashley. Well, Elon Musk is a seeing eye dog, and he's proven that. And I think he's got a a very good perspective of what's coming. And so that's why it's important to watch what he's doing and what he's saying, because it's an indication of things to come. It's been a pleasure to catch up with you. I hope people enjoyed this conversation on this day after Christmas as we uh, barrel toward the new year and hope that we see some changes in the way we get information that helps you know, make our democracy safer. That's what I would say. Okay, have a great day, my friend. Thank you, Ricky. Have a good and one. We will, we will see you tomorrow. Take care. Follow Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Super Talk MS Coast 103.1. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.